Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Ruler Conversations is brought to you by GCN+. We're getting right into the heart of classic season now, and I've cancelled all weekend plans until the end of April, when I anticipate again cancelling my weekend plans through May for the Giro d'Italia. We all know that the classics are unmissable races, and you can guarantee you won't miss a moment of these incredible races with GCN+. You can watch all the major races for both men and women, live and uninterrupted, with GCN Plus's ad-free coverage. And for those days when you just can't get out of what's been planned, you can catch up at a time that suits you with a full replay or GCN Plus's selection of highlights packages. There's expert commentary, and then GCN Plus's panel of knowledgeable ex-pros will analyse the action and explain the tactics. You can also get all the pre-race information you need with full previews, maps, profiles and start lists on the GCN app. With GCN Plus, the coverage continues all through the road and MTB seasons and beyond to the cyclocross and track seasons. And you'll have access to a huge collection of exclusive cycling films. There are over 150 to choose from, covering all aspects of the sport, with more added every week. A GCN Plus subscription costs as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, and all our listeners, based in the UK and US, can save 15% off an annual GCN Plus subscription. Head to gcn.eu slash ruler15 to subscribe. That's gcn.eu slash ruler15. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Ruler, and this is Ruler Conversations. For the final time this classic season, I'm at GCN Towers in Bath with GCN Plus presenter Dan Lloyd. We're going to cast a nostalgic eye back over the Ardennes races and the 2023 classic season as a whole. I'm also going to catch up with Rouleur's photojournalist James Start, who joined the party on the Mur de Huy at Flèche-Vallonne. And then I'm going to chat with Olga Abelos, the editor of our sister title, Volata magazine, about the upcoming Vuelta Femenina. But first, Dan, hello and how are you? I'm very well, yes. Um, just about getting over the spring classics and readying myself for the first Grand Tours. So the Ardennes races are now done. Tade Pogacar and Demi Vollering, not unsurprisingly, won at Flèche-Vallonne. Both outlasted their rivals on the Mur de Huy, which is what happens in Flèche-Vallonne. Vollering also won a quite absorbing edition of Liège-Baston-Liège in a two-up sprint with Elisa Longo-Borghini. But Pogacar 
crashed out of the men's edition early, leaving the way clear for Remco Evenepoel to replicate his 2022 victory. Down to the exact method, with an attack on the climb of Laredout and a solo ride to Liège. So Dan, now that you've digested Ardennes week, what's the impression that you're left with? My impression is that I wasn't as enthralled as I was for the cobbles. And I've been trying to get my head around whether that's because I generally get more excited for the Cobble Classics than I do for our Den Week, or whether it's because at Amstel, for example, there was only one favourite there on the men's side. He rode away with it. And in the end, at Liège, there was also only one favourite left because of Pogaccia's crash. And so there was sort of an air of inevitability about it once you learned about Pogaccia's crash. We all knew, everyone in the peloton knew that Avonapol was probably going to attack at some point on Lara Dute. There was a brief point when Pidcock got back on where I was thinking, we might have a race, especially when he shook his head and said, I'm not coming through to the front. <laughs> but then he didn't even attack after that. Even if Paul just carried on the front, Pidcock either blew up or decided that he wanted to fight for second in a different way. And so, yeah, it wasn't enthralling on the men's side. Like some of the women, there was a little bit more excitement about it. But at the same time, with this kind of form that Demi Vollering was on, I felt like she could get away with a few mistakes at Flesh Wallon and Liège Baston Liège and still go on to win, which is what happened. Classic season's like a night in a nightclub, one of the best nights you've ever had in your life. But just the end of the classic, just remind me of that last five or ten minutes before the lights come on and yeah. you realise the evening has already peaked and is coming to its inevitable conclusion at the kebab shop. Exactly, yeah. Just had a couple of shots at the end of the night, which you then regret the next morning. But yeah, I mean, I, I still... Watch something we don't have the live coverage from start to finish uh, at Liège and La Flèche Wallon like we do for the Cobble Classic races these days. But uh, yeah, we just knew the result really before it happened. So the biggest story in the men's race, I guess, is the story that didn't happen. All week we were building up to that heavyweight clash between Pogacar and Evenepoel. And it was very much that those were the only two riders in the conversation, essentially. It was Evenepoel versus Pogacar, the defending champion against the rider who's dominated partly the classics this year and in the end it was Evenepoel versus kind of not really anybody mm. really yeah it, it was so disappointing wasn't it I mean I think every fan's heart dropped when they saw the news on social media before the start of live coverage because you take one of those two out of the equation and it's just not as an exciting race as it might have been we don't know what might have happened. I mean, you could say that Pugacha might have been starting to get fatigued at that point, given what he's done already this year. But we saw at Flesh well on that he was still pretty much at the top of his game there. So hopefully it will happen in the future because actually those two have quite rarely been at a race which they've both dearly wanted to win and been both on top form at the same time. They're still in the early parts of their careers, let's not forget. But I hope we get that again at some point in the future because you know we've seen a lot of Pogacar against Van Aert and Van der Poel in the Cobble Classics, but we haven't seen too much of, of Evenepoel versus Pogacar just yet. Yeah, And this is, of course, not to take anything away from Evenepoel, who no. just looks like a, another generational superstar, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. There was a point in the race where after Pidcock had gone back to the group and the group had swelled to about 20 or so riders. And at that point, it was around about a minute and a half to Avonapol. But I looked at that group of 20 or so riders and thought, this is what we used to see at the front of the race. You know, not much of a difference between these guys. And we don't know yet who's going to win. But it just goes to show the difference in level between these five or six superstar rides on the men's side and the rest that... When he decides to go, there's just nothing anyone can do about it. We knew, you know, as soon as Sudar Quickstep were on the front with 140Ks or more than that to go, you knew what their plan would be. You knew what Avonapol's plan would be. 
And despite that, there was just nothing that anybody could do about it. And what's your perception of what he's actually good at? Because he's obviously very good at cycling, but in terms of his speciality, because he's less punchy than Pogacar, but he doesn't strike me as being a classic ruler either. And I'm, I'm struggling to categorise him. Why does he win bike races? What's he so good at that elevates him? I think just overall power up. I think he has got more punchy and the acceleration he did over the top of Lara Duke for the last couple of years shows that. He's got better in the sprints. We saw that in Catalonia, you know, day one where he almost got back up to Roglic. We know how punchy he is. So that's clearly something that he's worked on. But if you go back to the start of his pro career when he was really young, he turned pro out of the junior ranks. And it's always easy to look back to the junior ranks and try and decipher what somebody's strengths and weaknesses are. But you can never really decide from that point of view. You know, if you go back to some of the rides that have won Paris-Roubaix juniors, like a Popovich or a Pidcock. They haven't gone on to do Paris-Roubaix successfully since. And in Pidcock's instance, not even bothered to race it because he's just realised he's too light. So you can only take so much from it. But if you look back to the first couple of years of Avon Paul winning stage races, it was things like the Tour of Belgium. You know, he'd just be able to get away on a flat road and either ride somebody off his wheel or get some gap between them and, and nobody ever see him again. So, And he likes to race like that. I don't remember which race it was, but there was one, might have been Wells at Algarve or something many years ago, where he was just so excited to race. He went on the attack with 50Ks to go. And I think even he decided, actually, this is a bit stupid. We've got a big group chasing me behind. He sat up, but he's just able to ride really hard for an hour or more at the front of the race on his own. He's just so aerodynamic as well that he can get away with that. Yeah, and that's something we sometimes underestimate, isn't it? That it's not just the power output, it's the shape on the bike and management of effort as well. And I think he's either natural at that or has developed it so well that it looks natural. I'm not sure if he has got his head around management of effort yet. I mean, this is something that I used to speak about with Van der Poel a lot in the past, and I can see it a little bit of Avonapool. Because of how successful they've been from such a young age, I don't think they've ever really had the need to develop a tactical nous because they just decide when they want to go and in all likelihood they're going to be on their own. No one's going to be able to keep up with them. And so they have no need to learn tactics or learn how to save energy. And that's why I'm so interested in the Giro d'Italia because with Primoz Roglic, his arch rival there, we've got someone who's patient, who's calm, who never lets anything upset him. And we saw how frustrating Avonapool found that at the World of Catalonia. You know, everyone looking at that race, Roglic's got no reason to work with you. He's in the lead. It's up to you to try and get the lead off him. Why would he work with you and use his energy? And we could see how frustrated Avonapool became. So that's going to be a really interesting storyline to play out over those three weeks because despite all of his success, despite being world champion, he still gets himself really het up and he just desperately wants to win. And I just wonder how much energy he's going to use over those three weeks, getting frustrated and, and wanting to go on the attack and using energy where he doesn't need to. And he's that talented, I think he can get away with it, but I think he'd be even better if less entertaining, if he rode in a more strategic way. Yeah. And on the women's side, the women's flesh was... Relatively straight. I think, you know, flesh well is always straightforward. So we had a straightforward race in which the strongest climber on the Mule de Huy rode away from the rest. Mm -hmm. uh, Demi Vollering, of course. And then in Liège, best on Liège, a little more tactical and strategic. And we had the same rider winning, but it looked a lot more unpredictable and difficult to mm -hmm. manage from that side. So what yeah. was your takeaway from those two races? Well, I think in La Flèche Wallon... I thought Trek played a really good race there. I mean, Annemiek van Fleurten was the person that split it on the penultimate climb in the Mur de Huy. But once it was brought back, Vollering had to do quite a lot of work herself to bring that group back because she'd missed it. 
and immediately we saw Shira Van Androy go on the attack. She was caught and Amanda Spratt went. And she was unfortunate not to take anybody with her because had she had another equivalently strong rider with her, it would have been much harder to chase down. But if you look towards the finale, even on the penultimate climb of the day, Vollering just sat on the front and reduced the group down to, what, 10 or so riders. And I think conventionally I wouldn't look at that and say that's the way to win La Flèche-Boulon. Maybe she wanted to have a smaller group, less of a fight going into the, the final climb up to the finish. But from that point onward, you thought, well, there's no one else winning this. And she actually went really early on that last climb. You know, she didn't sit in and save herself for the last few hundred metres. She sat down, she was at the front, and there was that little smile when she looked round as she got out of the saddle because that was the first time she got out of the saddle. She looked round, no, no one was on her wheel. And at that point, she knew and we knew that she was going to win. Like you said, there was a bit, a few more tactics at play on Sunday at Liège. And I think had she not been on the form that she is in currently, that they'd been playing a very dangerous game, really. You know, Rusa being caught, then going on the attack, but taking Longo Borghini with her, you know, the fresher of the two by far. And Vollering decided she wasn't going to go with it. She was going to try and make other people chase. And eventually she had to take matters into her own hands because she realised that the race might be getting away from her. But she's just on such great form that she's able to get away with those sorts of mistakes and still go on to win at the end. Yeah. And she looks like she's gradually settling into the... It's not exactly a vacant spot yet because Annemiek van Vleuten hasn't retired and you know, she's got the rest of the season still to make some statements in races that suit her. But she's filling the gap that used to be occupied by Anna van der Breggen and Annemiek mm. van Vleuten. This year, for the first time, I felt that she's starting to step into that role rather than being the person who is going to step into that space. Yeah, I, I was expecting it last year, if I'm honest. You know, based on what would have been 2021, you remember van der Breggen in her final year working for Vollering, wins Liège, Baston Liège, loads of other big wins throughout the season. And I thought that when van der Breggen retires and she's almost the sole team leader in those races specifically for, for SD Works, that she would dominate already. And she just didn't seem to quite have it this time last year. I don't know why. Sometimes you can't put your finger on it. She might not even know why either. But for whatever reason, everything's fallen into place this year and she just never really looked like being beaten in any of those three races. And her team, SD Works, has had an extraordinary season, really. Lotte Kopecki dominated the cobbled races. Vollering has dominated the hilly classics. And Vollering's record in one-day races this year is, mm. is phenomenal. It's Apart from Omelette Hout Newsblad, I think, where she was probably early in her form, she's come first or second in everything. That team just looks... Well, they've certainly had more success than everyone else. Yeah, when you think that they've added Lorena Vibes as well for the sprints, it's a bit like looking at Jumbo Visma with Wout van Aert that can do everything, Primoz Roglic, Jonas Vinegar. You sort of think, well, in every race pretty much they go to, they've got a chance, a very good chance of winning. And it's the same for SD Works. Demi Vollering, you know, Ruiz is one of the best time tries and she plays a key role by going ahead early and winning in Ghent Wevelgem and allowing her teammates to sit on as they did on Sunday. And then Vibes for the sprints and also, you know, how strong was she in the Cobble Classics and Amstel Gold as well? She's more than just a sprinter these days. So it's really difficult for the other teams to come up with a plan to beat them. I mean, Trek Segafredo, they've had some bad luck. I think Longo Borghini had COVID and missed out on Strade Bianca and Alfredo Binder at the start of the year. But they can have hope with Van Androy getting better and better as the years go on. She's still only 21 years of age. Gaia Riolini has been one of the revelations of the season so far. Lizzie Diagon is coming back as well. Ellen van Dijk at some point will also come back. So once they're back at full strength with that squad, then it might be a slightly more even playing field. But this classic season, no one's been able to get close to SD Works, really. And 
in a way, it's an impressive feat of management to run that as well. Obviously, having great riders mm. gets you a long way towards winning races, but too many great riders can cause challenges yeah. as well. And they seem to have managed that well this season. They did in the end, didn't they? I think in the end, yeah. We, we, we were all speculating about in-house fighting after Strade Bianca, where there seemed to be a bit of an argument across the line, a bit of confusion, let's say, between Volering and Capecchi. But since then, you know, I think they've quashed all of that, particularly in the way that they embraced after Amstel Gold and Volering telling Capecchi how much he loved her, etc. I think it's manageable at the moment because there's a, there's just enough of a difference, isn't there? It's not like having a Van der Poel and a Van Aert in the same team. You've got Vollering that slightly favours the Hillier races. You've got Capecchi who slightly more favours the cobbled, punchier races. You've got Vibes that knows you'll have full team support for the sprints, etc. And then Rosa, who seems quite happy just to be able to take her chances. And if she wins, great. And if not, she's helped the team. So as things stand, I think we've got quite a cohesive team there. It just depends on whether ambitions change over the next couple of years and one or two of the riders start to get frustrated they not get more opportunities. Yeah. So overall classic season, it's hard to see outside the fact that it's been Van der Poel, Pogacar and Evenepoel and a bit of Van Aert on the men's side and on the women's side, Kopechkin following basically, which is SD Works. And there's only been Paris-Roubaix Fram, which has really been a wild card in terms of results and it reminds us that nothing can ever be taken for granted, but it does seem that that was the story of classic season this year, wasn't it? Those dominant riders and very little for anybody else. No, exactly. It just feels like when those big names are on the start list, they are almost guaranteed to win, which wasn't necessarily the case. Well, obviously, you're always going to have favourites with the bookies, but they weren't always guaranteed to win. But it struck me that you need more than one of them to be in the same race, particularly on the men's side. Again, just going back to Amstel and Liège, with just one left in the final of each of the, those races or just one on the start line of Amstel Gold, it doesn't have that air of suspense anymore. It's also struck me that they just don't seem to have an off day. Like Van der Poel, maybe. Like he seems a little bit more one of those riders where if he was outside the top 20, for example, then you wouldn't be hugely surprised. Like he's just had an off day. But for the other five, it's so rare that they have any sort of problems. Like if they say they're on good form, they're almost certainly going to be there at the end. And again, that hasn't always been the case in one day races specifically. Even just look at Lander on Sunday, third at Fleshwell on, you think, well, he's got a good chance of maybe getting a top three again at Liège, but just had an off day. And that's fairly normal. Like riders just don't know why they've got an off day, but it happens. Whereas with Avon Paul, he hasn't raced for ages, but knows from training that he's going well. But he still never seems to have that off day in a race that we so often saw in the past. And I, I can't quite work out how they've managed to become so consistent and never have these bad days. It's a funny one, isn't it? Because on one hand, the greatest riders in the world, generational talents winning races, is good for business, isn't it? It's what the sport celebrates. Throughout the history of cycling, there's always been these iconic, legendary figures of the sport. And that's great for cycling because it attracts publicity and it attracts attention and it reinforces the fact that this is a sport where you want the best people to win. And on the other hand, there's an element of predictability about the same names winning the race. And it's a funny tension that, that cycling has that I maybe perceive it less in yeah. other sports or maybe because I'm more into cycling that I perceive that. But it's a funny one, isn't it? It is. I'll use a football analogy. Like I was keeping my eye on the scores the other night and you've got Arsenal at the top of the table and Southampton pretty much at the bottom and Southampton go 2-0 up in the first 20 minutes. And, and people like that. You know, If you're a neutral observer of a sport, it's like, wow, the underdog. 
they're winning and it's just happening less and less. And I think we've talked about this before, but it's we're at a point where it's still reasonably interesting because we had come to a point where we weren't used to seeing the big riders go on the attack until the last possible moment. They had such strong teams around that they could basically pull them along until the moment that they wanted to go. And so it was a breath of fresh air to see an Avonpool go last year at Liège on Lara Duke because we hadn't seen that work for so many years. But if it keeps happening year after year after year, it, it's going to get boring pretty quickly if for the next three years Avonpool rides off on Lara Duke and everyone's fighting for second place behind. Uh, so overall memories, impressions, high points, low points of the classic season, what are the things you think in five years' time you'll think back, ah, oh, that summed up the 2023 classic season? I think Pogaccia riding away at Flanders will stick in my mind. You know, not unexpected, but just great to see a Tour de France winner wanting to go to that race and then winning it. I think, like you mentioned, Alison Jackson winning at Roubaix is a you know, sign that you can still start a race with a plan as a an outsider and pull it off on the day, you know, like a Heyman type thing that we saw a few years ago in the men's race. So those two, I think, will stick out for me. And the one that you probably won't remember as much, but that could have changed things a lot, is Van Aert's puncture on Carrefour de Lab. I mean, a little bit like Sunday's Liège-Baston-Liège, where you just wanted to see Pogaccia versus Avonapool, what the outcome might have been, we'll never know. And it's the same, really, that day in Roubaix, isn't it? You want to see those two head-to-head. -head. But it just so rarely happens, does it? But I'd say overall, we've seen some brilliant racing this spring. I've been glued to my box for most of it. Life and cycling are rarely predictable. Dan, you've got a week and a bit off now and then off to the Giro. Thanks very much for your input on these races. Next up, James Start at the Mur de Huy. I'm interrupting this podcast to remind all listeners to subscribe to Rouleur, the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Our latest edition, out now, is Rouleur 118, the classics issue. The classics are the beating heart of world cycling. These grippy, tough, atmospheric races in the chilly north of a European spring are full of character and excitement. Yes, the Tour de France is colourful and glamorous, but the classics are real life, a kitchen sink drama compared to the operatic grandeur of the Tour and Giro d'Italia. We're celebrating the classics in Rouleau 118. The magazine features an exclusive interview with Eritrean rider Binyam Gurmai. Gemai is one of cycling's most prominent rising stars. He won Gent-Wevelgem and a stage in the Giro d'Italia last year, and he tells us he is aiming even higher this year. But results aside, as the most successful black African rider the sport has yet seen, Gemai is smashing down barriers and paving the way for many more to follow. Also in Rula 118, interviews with Movistar's new signing Leanne Lippert and Spanish classic stalwart Immanuel Erviti, who has ridden more editions of Paris-Roubaix and the Tour of Flanders than any other current pro. How do you win the Tour of Flanders? Seven different champions, including Lizzie Dignan, Tom Boonen and Johan Museo, tell us how they achieved victory in the Ronde. And we've taken a deep dive into Flemish cycling culture and visited the best cycling bars in Flanders. Rouleau 118 is available now. To support our journalism and receive a magazine every six weeks, please subscribe. Go to rouleau.cc hit the subscribe button and enter the code PODCAST15. That's PODCAST15 to get 15% off our regular subscription price. And now, back to the show. 
I'm joined now by James Start, ruler staff photojournalist, who was at Fleshwallow last week and sent a brilliant gallery of pictures for the Rulo website. Uh, we will get to Flesh, James, but I've already chatted with Dan Lloyd about the Ardennes classics and the spring classic season as a whole. But what were your takeaways from this last week of racing, other than Pogachar and Evanapol are probably generational talents? Well, they absolutely are. I mean, put either one of them in the race and... If the other one's not there, then everybody else is fighting for second. And if they're both there, everybody else is fighting for third, it seems. It's pretty crazy. We had a chat before we came on and you were disappointed by the fact that we were denied a clash between Evanpol and Pogacar at the end. Well, absolutely. I mean, that we were building up to that. Everything going into it was, can anybody touch Pogacar? Because he'd been untouchable. And the only person who could possibly do it was Remco, who's just coming off this altitude camp going straight in, hadn't done the Amstel, hadn't done flesh. It was just going, putting it all into defending this title at Liege. And, you know, we are expecting this huge duel that never really materialized, unfortunately. I can't take anything away from Remco. I mean, he still had a great ride and seeing the rainbow jersey soloing off for 30K like he did was just stunning. But yeah, it was a little bit frustrating, obviously, I think, because we really did want to see what would have happened if both of them were in that race. And now that we're through the spring classics and, you know, stretching all the way back to, depending when you start, could be stretching back to Milan San Remo or Strade Bianche or Omloop Hep Newsblad. So what are your highs and lows from this classic season as a whole? What are your main memories and impressions? I think it's one of the great classic seasons in recent memory for me. Uh, why? Because every one of those races earned the degree monument. They were all won by huge efforts by the biggest talents of our generation. There were no surprises. There's no guy who kind of sneaked away just on a playing people off against each other, be it Pidcock and Strati, be it Vanderpool at Milan San Remo, Pogacar in Flanders or at Amstel or at Flesch, uh, Vanderpool again at Roubaix, and then Evanapol here at Liège. All of those monuments were monumental rides by the greatest names in the sport today. It was a great classic season. Who do you think had the best classic season? I guess I would give it to Vanderpool because Milan San Remo is just the most beautiful. And for me, Roubaix is the most spectacular. And so Flanders is great, but Amstel for me is a step down from the others. It's not a monument. So I guess I have to give it to Vanderpool. So let's go from your least favorite race in the so-called Ardennes week. We're well aware on the Ruler podcast that Amstel Gold does not technically take place in the Ardennes region. But to your favourite one, which is Flesh Wallone. And you were on the Mur de Ouy for the day of Flesh Wallone. So how was it for you? You know, I just love that race. It's one of my favourite races. Why? Well, because it's not on everybody's radar. It's in the middle of the week. It's not a monument. It's only 200 odd kilometres. But it says, you know, it's a historic race. It's a beautiful race. And then there's just this coming together of the crowd and the fans. And that's what it's all about. I mean, in some ways it gets criticized because it's like this glorified hill climb, right? But the fans, they just come and the tension builds all day. Each of the race, the women's race and the men's race pass three times. And the tension is just rising all day. And so I didn't even go to the start. I just wanted to be there with the fans, with the cyclists, with the, the ambience on the first passage of the women's race, which was was early. It was like, I think it was at 10.02, I think the first women came across, which is, that's before beer and freaks time by even Belgian standards. So there weren't a lot of people on the climb yet, which is a bit of a problem. I think they should push that women's start back a little bit, but 
you know, still you got the, the women coming up. There's not too many people on the climb yet. And you get the early morning light. It was a beautiful spring day. It was beautiful. And the whole race, just the tension just built lap after lap, passage after passage. And it was tremendous. Let's talk about the racing side of it first, because it has come in for a little bit of criticism in, well, for years, really. It's been um, probably for understandable reasons as well, for being not the most interesting race, because essentially the same scenario has played out for, it must be 20 editions, so there have been best part of 20 identical race scenarios where there is a bunch at the bottom of the mur and a winner at the top of it, and it's whoever rides up that final climb the fastest. Um, even Brian Cookson, the former president of the UCI, even he weighed in and he opined that it needed a rethink. And it just seems it's become a bit of a running joke. But it's funny because I used to rail against it myself and find it very dull, formulaic, predictable. But I'm much more into it these days. And I think I finally achieved acceptance about what flesh alone is. And I don't think the race tries to be anything that it isn't. And it understands completely what it is. It has this one single focal point. The only interesting thing about Flesh Wallone is the Meur de Huy. And they've expanded its role in the race by having riders crest it several times. And the last one and a half kilometres kind of up the drag through Huy and then on the climb itself. I think that's one of the best finishing climbs in cycling on a racing level I, I find it tense exciting and you just know that it's very very hard to ride up and, and I know that riders are getting very good at judging their effort on it but at the same time to be able to win still takes patience timing and all the physical attributes as well and I find that <laughs> for a race of 200 plus kilometers, finding the last kilometer and a half may not sound like the best USP, but at the same time, it's one of the best climbs in cycling. Absolutely. And, you know, railing against it, it's like railing against Milan San Remo. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing except it's not that hard of a race. It all comes down to the Poggio, but that's what it is. That's the beauty of that race. And you have to accept it for what it is. And flesh is very much like that. And it's not because it's predictable that it's easy. It's actually a really hard race to get right. Just ask Pogacar, who was killing it last year, and I don't even think he finished in the top 10 because he got his timing all wrong. It takes riders sometimes a few years to figure out exactly where to place that effort. Some guys get it right from the beginning, like, say, Philippe was second and I think his first try, you know? But some guys, it takes them a few years to get it right because it's all about timing and placing that last dig right where you want it. Pogacar did it. Demi, uh, Vollering did it as well. She might be the best, you know, highlight of the classic season. I mean, she was just all over it. There was just no question she was going to win it. And it's kind of hard to know what the organisers could do to make it more exciting. You could add more climbs earlier in the race, but that would have the effect of maybe just having a smaller group at the bottom of the Mille de Huy and the same person winning. Or you could add distance, but you know, for a midweek race between two much longer races, Amstel, Gold and Liège, Bastogne, Liège, that would be complicated. And so other than leave it as it is and just accept that it is not the most televisual race for a while until you get to the final part of the race, and that's what Flesh Wallone is good at. And maybe tweaking it too much risks losing what's good about it and not actually gaining anything to replace that. 
Absolutely. I happen to like it as it is, so I think you should leave it as it is. And, I, and I, I'd say anybody listening to this podcast, if you're a true bike racing fan, take your Wednesday off. Take a couple of these off in the middle of the week in April and come on over. It's a great time. Beer and frites galore. There's a big screen. Uh, there's games. It's a wonderful, good-spirited block party that happens to be around a bike race. Actually speaks to a more profound question about what bike racing is for and what makes a good bike race. Because, yes, on a purely racing level, flesh alone is not, it's not even Amstel Gold, James, is it? You know, it is a a longish race with a sprint up a hill. Has been so in living memory and will probably continue to be so. But I've always been of the opinion, and, and increasingly, the longer I follow this sport, I entrench myself in this opinion more and more, is that Bike racing is not all that is great about bike racing. There is a lot more. Uh, we always talk about how the real world bleeds into bike racing and bike racing bleeds into the real world. And this is true of flesh alone. Your point last week about the finish of Amstel Gold not having any atmosphere, you know, that I could tell that really affected your enjoyment of the race, even though the race itself is the race. You know, you get riders riding hard, you get attacks, you get a sprint, you get all the mechanics of a bike race but without that je ne sais quoi that the crowd adds then it, it detracts from it slightly and that's why i've come to think that the flesh alone is is a more superior race than a lot of people give it credit for it's more than a bike race that last climb is a celebration of cycling fandom and intense race atmosphere you don't actually find that intensity of fandom in many other places in the whole season so flesh alone no, it's not a 10 out of 10 as far as pure racing enjoyment goes, but maybe it's a, a 9 or 10 out of 10 in terms of atmosphere. And I think that counts for something. I absolutely agree with you. And I think great bike races and the, or I think the organizers owe it to the public and to the race to start and finish in great places. And the flesh does do that. The great thing is that cycling is accessible to the fans. And so if there's a great bike race and no fans, well, then it's just a bike race. So what were your memories of the actual day? How was it on the party? You know, you live in Paris. You play in a funk band. You obviously like a party. Um, how was it on the Mur? It's been a few years since I've been there, but I love it. And I think I made that point clear. I mean, I was, I was there early in the morning. I walked all the way down to the bottom, came back up. The locals were saying, hey, you want to come over for a beer or you want something to eat? I mean, what more do you want? It was just a wonderful spirit. And... You know, these families, like uh, somebody would go over to the fruit stand and bring the frites across and they'd just be sitting there next to the, the spot that they had on the barriers, eating their frites. And, and then the cyclists came putting their frites down and just screaming because they were truly excited to see the racers. I talked to this one group of guys. They were from uh, Limburg, so from Holland. They've been coming over every year. They take a day off or two days off to come over every year. They rent like, two buses with I don't know how many people from about a 30 kilometer region in Limburg. And they come over and said, and it's not just all friends. They, they, there's these two buses. People come from miles around. They get on and they know they're going to see some people they saw last year. They're not particularly friends, but they're going to see old friends from the years before. It's a wonderful spirit. And I talked to another guy who I uh, believe he lived around Charleroi. And he rode over with a somewhat enhanced bicycle. Rides over every year. He's retired, you know, and just said, I'd like to ride over, try to to always want to see this race because it's a special race and you get to see them come by so many times. And so, yeah, I mean, it is for those people 
maybe it's one of cycling's best kept secrets. I don't know. But the people who were there, they know about it and they know why they're coming and they wouldn't miss it for the world. And do they charge entry or fence it off or? No. Anybody can walk up that climb. It's a steep climb, even the walk. It's first come, first serve. It's open to all. And that's, that's the beauty of bicycle racing. And it's ironic, actually, because by the time the last climb happened, as a television viewer, I'm finally focused on the racing. But I guess the every time each race comes up the climb, the atmosphere gets better, more rowdy, more noisy, more intense. And that's something that inverse in the way we experience it as TV viewers, because the first time the riders are just tapping up. Meanwhile, I'm very conscious of the crowds and the cheering, whereas by the last time up, I'm barely aware of that, whereas on the ground, it must be the opposite experience. Yeah, absolutely. But if there was one suggestion, I would say put the women's race a little bit later and just you know make that gap between the two a little closer. You're going to have more fans out there. It's going to be more condensed and it's going to be even, even more intense. Finally, just making sure that you did your research, how were the beer and frites? Well, the frites were right on, you know, the double bath, the classic double bath, right? I mean, that's what makes the Belgian frites, Belgian frites. As for the beer, I went light. I went for the, uh, it was a Jupiter Juliper, which is basically light beer in Belgium, just because, well, I was working that day, but you had to have something to wash those frites down with, so... I wouldn't trade it for anything. It was a great thing. So there you have it, racing fans. If you want to experience the real flesh alone and understand what's truly great about it, get yourself to the Mur de Huy next year. The Vuelta Femenina is one of the biggest changes for the 2023 cycling season. It's moved from September to May, taking the reverse journey of its male counterpart, which used to be the first Grand Tour of the year, now takes place in late summer. So the Vuelta Femenina 2023 is longer, more challenging, and the route looks a little more worthy of the designation of a Grand Tour. So I'm joined by Olga Abalos, who edits Ruler's sister title, Valata, in Spain. Valata is a beautiful magazine, and if you can read Spanish, I'd really recommend subscribing and reading. Olga's a Spanish cycling and music journalist based in Barcelona, which is my dream Venn diagram overlap, and she's going to tell us a bit about the upcoming Vuelta Femenina. So, Olga, the 2023 race is quite a departure from the previous format. It's moved to May. The parkour is more varied, more challenging than previous years, and on paper, this looks great. Yeah, it... Uh, well, hello, first of all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the parkour looks great, very challenging for the, all the cyclists. I guess they wanted to design a race that has the same level as Girodone and Tour de France because La Vuelta wanted to position themselves like the third Grand Tour for women cycling. And they, yeah, they prepare a race uh, with this good stages and some challenges like the first stage, which is a time trial that it's a different one. What's its position in the Spanish cycling landscape? Wow, it's a, that's a tough question because it goes from the south of Spain. Well, not the south. The east coast of Spain, uh, which is the, the area of uh, Alicante, that uh, maybe some English <laughs> people are you will know. The, the, re- the readers of Rula are keen aficionados of the, I ge- I guess of the I, Mediterranean yeah, coast. I think there are a lot of direct flights <laughs> from UK to Alicante. <laughs> you can also get good fish and chips, somebody, that, somebody told. I heard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so in this area, so it's uh, the coast and this area of the coast, and it ends in Lagos de Covadonga, which is the other side of Spain, 
where the, the landscape is totally different, it's high mountain, so it gives the two sides of Spain. And maybe the weather will be very different, so maybe the, the cyclists will start with hot weather and they will end up maybe even with rain. So in one week it can happen everything. You can get all that in one day in the UK, Olga. Um, <laughs> so before we get on to the specifics of 2023, uh, the Vuelta, it's grown over the years. It started out as a one-day race, bolted onto the end of the men's Vuelta and it was laps of Madrid. So can you tell us a little bit about its history and development over the years? Yeah, it, actually, you, you say it very well. I mean, it started like one day, then two days, then I think three days, and then they did this big jump until one week race. So in a few years, the Vuelta España has changed a lot. And I think somehow the organizers felt that uh, they had to take it seriously because there was like uh, some comments about if they wanted to do it or not. You know, it's like, you want to do it this uh, seriously? Do you want to do a proper race? Okay, so do it. No. Try to pretend you're doing a Vuelta España with a three days uh, race, you know, so. And it's happening this year. Let's see. <laughs> yeah. It's not just a journey geographically. It's a, a racing journey as well. You know, it starts down on the coast, as you said, with um, team time trial and flat stage. Then it kind of moves into the interior and seems to get gradually more hilly and bumpy for the second phase of the race through central Spain. And finally, a weekend with a middle mountain stage, and then one of the hardest summit finishes, one of the most iconic and famous summit finishes in Spain. So it does, from a racing level, it does look like quite a coherent journey. Yeah, it is. And and it's got, it's getting, is, is what you said, it's getting harder and harder and harder. And I guess the La Vuelta wanted to finish it in a very iconic climb. Like, like you say, it's Lagos de Covadonga, which has a, a long story in Spain. And I don't know, maybe they wanted to repeat a little bit what happened in Tour de France Feb because they ended in La Planche de Desbel Fields. So maybe a kind of they do something similar. My only concern with this parcours is that, or this race, is that I don't know what is going to happen with the team trial stage because not all the teams are prepared to do a good team trial. So I think from the beginning we'll have big differences. And I don't think this is totally fair, to be honest, because some cyclists will be too behind from the beginning and maybe they can win La Vuelta. But because of this, maybe they don't have enough chances. And I don't think this is, I mean, there's different ways of saying it, but maybe you will see, OK, but maybe this uh, this uh, can help to um, to push the competition. And also race organisers the last few years, you know, there's growing acknowledgement and awareness in the cycling world that cycling is seen as a green activity rightly so because it's you know on a on a personal level getting around town on a bike is far cleaner and greener than using a car but races still incorporate transfers and the Vuelta has it's got a couple of long transfers it's covering a lot of ground is that an issue that's kind of to the fore in Spain as well? For me, it's an issue because it adds too many hours traveling. And I don't think this is good for, for the competition and the race itself. And gives like a, how to say, it gives like a, like a weird sense of Vuelta, which means Vuelta means tour. So it's like a journey. So it's like a journey made of pieces that are a little bit disconnected. It's good for La Vuelta to end up in, in Lagos de Covadonga, for instance. 
but maybe I don't know maybe they should connect the stages in a different way because for instance there's a, like a big gap between the fifth stage and the sixth one I mean they have to cross half of the country to get to the north and uh, and this is one of the things also it's happening in in the male race so if you count if you sum up all the kilometers they do it on the bike and in the car I mean sometimes they pass more time in the car or in the buses that on the bike and I mean from ecological point of view this is not very good <laughs> yeah, very true. so we've talked already about one of the cultural highlights of the race which is the coast in Alicante but what are the other cultural highlights Talk about the regions that the, the race is going through yeah the first two stages they are happening in near the coast so you know I guess you're more or less familiar with what is happening there so this area is very can be a little bit tricky because of the wind depending on on the day there's some big steep climbs in this area the third one it's uh, in in an area called Castilla La Mancha so and this is this area is very well known because there's a flat long road very windy very windy and sometimes when La Vuelta España the, the male version travels in this area it's uh, normally we say it's like a, they are transition stages, no? So, yeah. So, but maybe they are the worst, the worst ones because they are the stages where there's big breakaways, but there's a lot of wind. And if you make a mistake, you can lose a lot of time in these kind of races. So the third stage can be a little bit like this. And then the fourth and the fifth, it's happening near Madrid. It's a very hilly area. The weather changes a little bit. It can be a little bit rainy, cloudy, let's see. They are good stages for breakaways because it's all, all the time up and down, up and down, up and down. And then the last ones are really hilly stages with big climbs. The one in Castordiales, which is near Basque country, it can be similar. I mean, if you saw Itzulia, Vuelta al País Vasco, you can see that in your mind, this kind of landscapes. And then the last one, it's in Asturias, with big climbs like Lagos de Covadonga. So um, it's a very humid weather with clouds, may maybe rain. The temperatures will be lower than in, in Alicante. And the start list is very sparse still, but one of the riders who jumped off the start list at me is Annemiek van Vluten, obviously. I mean, she hasn't been showing fantastic form this year, but then again, this is her kind of race. She won the last two editions with her riding for a Spanish team I guess it's important that she's here yeah yeah I think she wants to repeat the victory in this race and for her I know that Anemic one likes when the race is very tough it's true that we haven't seen her in in the top of his um, shape but I think he's somehow I think he's holding herself but for what is happening in the rest of the season I mean she has Vuelta España, Girodone and, uh, and Tour de France. So I think the best enemic is uh, will come and maybe La Vuelta is, uh, will see a different enemic. And of course, for Movistar, it's the race they should win, <laughs> to be honest. They should win this. Of course. And Lagos to Covadonga is, you know, it's a really, really hard climb, isn't it? So it's perfect for her yeah. capacities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's true. You know that uh, TV series from Movistar, El Día Menos Pensado? I don't know if you 
Can you see this in... in yes, yeah? uh, the oh, least okay. expected day is the... Uh, uh, yeah, that's the, that's yeah, the, the title, the, trans, yeah. the, the, the weird <laughs> translation. <laughs> well, it's, it's, quite the, it's quite the same. In, in, in a, so it's a good translation. So when Anamik is, is uh, in those uh, chapters, the way she put herself in the same level as, uh, as men, and sometimes she, she talks about big names in cycling, and she said, I can be like them. If that cyclist can do it, I can do it. <laughs> so I guess uh, Anemic knows the history of cycling and knows Lagos de Covadonga, and I'm sure she will put herself in the same level as other cyclists. When you're Spanish, you always think about Chava Jimenez, no? In and uh, in the 90s, so name, names like this. So I'm sure Anemic will uh, would like to be like like them. And finally, the move to May it puts the world to you know after the classics in its own little slot in the calendar, and it's followed by Itzulia and Vuelta Burgos. So May suddenly looks quite positive for women's cycling in Spain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have, like, everything in the same month. I don't know if this is good or not. <laughs> in the classics, maybe the girls spend, like, two or three weeks in Belgium, for instance. So maybe they can do the same in Spain. They can spend a whole month here in Spain, uh, training in Spain. So, it, yeah, maybe it can be a good for, for this in that sense. The thing is that Vuelta España and and maybe Zulia can have, maybe can be like too similar and also Vuelta Burgos. So I don't know if you having three traces that can be more or less the same. It's good or not. Let's see this year. We will see. The Vuelta Femenina starts on May the 1st. Olga, thank you for your time. I hope you enjoy the race. And everybody who's listening, please buy Olga's magazine because it is an absolute work of art. Thanks, Olga. Uh, My pleasure. That's all for Ruler Conversations for now. We will be back next week with news of our latest magazine. You have been listening to Ruler Conversations. Ruler Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Ruler magazine. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Ruler and on Instagram at Ruler magazine or visit our website at ruler.cc. This episode was produced by Amber Miller of Content is Queen. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.